0: Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. I am glad to be back in Berean Baptist Church today. Last week I was speaking in Delano, California, where Brother Enrique Castro is the pastor there, and I had a great time there, and it's wonderful to get out and go to other places and find out there are good churches and there are Christians in other places that are really preaching the Gospel of Christ. But when it comes to preaching, I just want to let you know, I'm a stay-at-home kind of guy. I mean, I would rather be here speaking to you, talking to our own congregation at Brian Baptist than I would to be in any other place. I love God's people, and I love being able to preach to you. And preaching is really such a wonderful, a wonderful vocation. I consider this to be the highest calling that God can give anyone. Now, you'll pardon me today if I say that my job is better than your job. I don't say that with egotism, and I don't say with conceit, but I say it with understanding that the job that I've been given to do is to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is the best thing that any person could ever do. I realize I'm in the service of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there's nothing, no vocation upon this earth that could ever measure up or compare to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And then preaching is also a great vocation because I know that I follow in the steps of many men who were great preachers. I go back and I think about the Apostle Paul and how he began those first churches in the first century. And I realize I have been given the same job that the Apostle Paul had. And I think about men like uh, in history, like like John Knox and Martin Luther and, and John Calvin. And I think about the Reformation period and realize that I have a job that they had to do. I'm called as they were. And I think about other men, uh, John Gill and Benjamin Keach, Isaac Backus. I think of Jonathan Edwards. I think of Basil Manley Jr. and Charles Spurgeon. Great men of the faith who, who preached the Word of God faithfully so, for so many years. And I'm following in the footsteps of great men of God. And then I also think about my own father, who preached for over 50 years, and uh, he had a great impact upon me. And when I stand before you, I reflect much of the teachings that he gave me. And so there are many who came before, and I do realize I don't have the abilities, I don't have all the capabilities that many of those men had, I don't have the knowledge that they have, I'm not as great a man of the faith as they were, but I do realize that I've been given a calling, and I thank God for that. But I also think about the very highest standard uh, uh, that was ever given. The, The highest standard to live by was given to us by this one who gave the call to others, and that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was also a preacher. Now, in our text today, Matthew declares, from that time, Jesus began to preach. Now, today I'd like to talk to you about the preaching of Jesus, I'm not going to be able to tell you everything that he said. We have the rest of the Gospel of Matthew to go through, and we'll be here for quite some time into the future talking about many things that Jesus said. But we're going to confine ourselves to what this particular passage talks about when it speaks of Jesus' preaching. And so we'll look at this text today in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading at verse 12. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 4 beginning at verse number 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, and that's speaking about John the Baptist, when he heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zabulun and Nathalem, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulun and the land of Nathalem, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in the shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for those who have come to hear your word today. I ask you, Lord, that you'd bless as we preach and that your Holy Spirit would come into the hearts of people today and they would realize the message, the important message that Jesus preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's message is pure preaching from a pure preacher. You may remember that... About a month or so ago, I preached from the third chapter of Matthew, and there we were talking about John the Baptist. And the subject at that time was plain preaching from a plain preacher. And John the Baptist truly was a a plain preacher. Wasn't anything fancy about him at all. Uh, No one, nothing that you could look at John the Baptist and say, well, this is the most successful man that I've ever seen. And you wouldn't think of him that way. But he was just a very plain preacher and not really not really the kind of preacher that most people wanted. He was a a great preacher. And Jesus did say about him that up until the time that John was born that there had never been a greater person than John the Baptist. But as great as John the Baptist was, he was nothing more than a man. He was a sinner. And John the Baptist said about Jesus, he said, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the shoestrings of this man. And so he he looked at Jesus, and he realized that Jesus was certainly greater than he was. Now, let's begin with this today. First, I want to talk to you about the person who preached. Jesus was different from John the Baptist. Now, Jesus was not a sinner. Uh, John was a great man, but he came into the world the same way that all of us come into the world. John the Baptist was a sinner. And that way, he wasn't different from any other person that we have in this room today. All of us have been born with the sinful nature. And as good as we try to be, even if we try to be as good as John the Baptist and have all the qualities that he had, we still understand that we are sinners in need of the grace of God. And all of the preachers that came after John, all of them are exactly the same. We're all sinners. Martin Luther, who was that great preacher of the Reformation, spent time in a monastery daily torturing himself, mutilating himself, whipping himself in order that he might drive sin from him. And he thought by doing that he could become holy and that he'd be able to come into the presence of God. But Luther finally discovered that there was nothing that he could do. There was no goodness that he had in himself. There was no way that he could measure up to God's perfection. And so Luther finally came to that great doctrine of the Reformation of justification by faith alone. It's not in anything that we do. Now, I call that a great doctrine of the Reformation, but rest assured, it goes way back beyond the Reformation. It goes all the way back to the time that Jesus Christ preached it, back to the times of the Bible. Well, there's never been a preacher who ever lived who wasn't a sinner except one. And the one who set the standard is Jesus Christ, now, the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew makes it very clear to us, it's very explicit in his de- its declaration, that Jesus was the virgin-born Son of God. And so he didn't come into the world with a sin nature. And in that way, he stands above and beyond every single person. And certainly, we would stay, say that he stands above every preacher. But still, we know that Jesus was human. He was God incarnate. He came in flesh and blood, and just like all of us, Jesus had to learn some things. Now, Jesus had a calling. I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus was commissioned to preach. I believe that the call to preach is a divine calling. And every true preacher of the gospel is called by God to preach. Now, there are some who take on the vocation of preaching as simply as a job that they do. And so they get started very early in life, and they decide, well, the thing that I want to do is I want to be a preacher. So they get the money together, and they attend school. They learn some things there. Uh, they they uh, prepare, and they learn many different things. They, they uh, get the money together to go to a seminary and attend there, and they enter into this profession of being a spiritual advisor, being a preacher. But they've actually received no specific calling. What they needed was just a job. They needed a a, a career. And so they've decided that the thing that they'll take up is preaching. And so they stand up in pulpits Sunday after Sunday, and they just come here and they do their job. But biblical preaching is not just a thing that you do. It requires a calling from God. Now, there is a commission that God gives to preachers, and unless a person is specifically called to this, Unless God has spoken to that person's heart and told them, I want you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, if God hasn't done that, then a man who stands in the pulpit will have a ministry that's unfruitful. It'll be ineffective because God calls his preachers. Now, Jesus, then, the sinless Son of God, was commissioned by his Father to preach. Matthew, as we know, is very fond of, of quoting prophecy concerning Jesus. And we're going to get down to verses 14 and 16 in just a minute. But those are verses that relate to Christ's calling to preach the light of the gospel in the region of Galilee. And the Old Testament had prophesied that. Now I want you to turn, if you would please, just a few pages over in your Bible to Luke chapter 4. And here we find Jesus is in Nazareth. That's the place, of course, where he grew up. And he was handed the book of Isaiah. And Jesus, as he picked up that scroll of Isaiah, he turned to the appropriate place and he began to read. Now look at uh, Luke chapter 4, verse number 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now we notice there that Jesus said, God has anointed me to preach the gospel. That was his commission. It was his calling to preach. And what Jesus was told to do was to say the words that the Father told him to say. And so there is no preacher who enters into this vocation proclaiming anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has a true calling. This is what God has called us to do, to preach the everlasting gospel of Jesus. And we can't preach anything better than that. We're not told to preach anything other than that. Now, we do know this, that in churches today, there are a lot of opinions that come into the pulpit. There's a lot of people who stand up and they want to tell you what they think about things... There's very little reading of the Word of God in churches today. There's really very little true exposition of the Word of God. But the Bible says that everyone who has been commissioned to preach, even as Jesus was commissioned to preach, is to preach this gospel of Jesus Christ, we're to preach the words that God told us to preach, and we're not to preach anything else. Now, if Jesus needed a calling to do that, you can rest assured that we need a calling as well. Jesus was called to preach And if you have a pastor, if you have a preacher that's standing before you that's been called to preach, then you need to understand that what is done behind this pulpit, what's done right here, deserves your utmost attention. And so that means that it's not a time for talking and whispering while preaching is going on. This is not a time for you to catch up on your sleep for about 40 minutes or so on a Sunday morning. It's not time for you to get up and go in and out of the service and do other things while preaching is going on. You really need to respect the Word of God. Now, most of you, you've seen Brother Alfred over here. You know, Alfred has been in the church about as long as I have. I mean, I think when I first came here, I think Alfred was attending church then. Alfred can get a little bit excited about preaching, and Alfred will sometimes speak out, as you notice he's done. But let me tell you something, Alfred and everybody else. I appreciate you so much, brother. You're a wonderful brother in Christ. When the preaching is done, we don't need competition. We need to listen to the word of God as it's being preached and very carefully consider what's being said because the person who stands behind the pulpit is declaring the very words of God. And there's nothing that ought to be listened more carefully to than the very words of God. Now, Jesus had profound respect for the word. And I don't claim that when I stand up here that every word that I say that God says, you say this, he punches my button and he said, here's the next word you're going to say because you know that couldn't be true because I make a lot of mistakes when I preach. God doesn't make mistakes. I do. But in general, God has given me a message to preach and we ought to respect the message that's being preached. Jesus had profound respect for the word of God. He used it. He lived by it. He held it up. He proclaimed it. And he said, this is the only way of salvation. The words of Jesus are the words of God. And Jesus thought the words of God were so important that he said, if you want the Father to love you, then you must keep my words. So Jesus was commissioned to preach. But also we notice that Jesus was prepared to preach. Jesus came into the world as a baby. He, he was the human-born Son of God. And like all children, Jesus had to grow. Matthew doesn't record any events of the life of Jesus as a young man or as a child, a teenager. Uh, He does tell us about his birth, of course, but he doesn't really tell us very much about Jesus' life. And so people will ask questions. What was Jesus doing? What was Jesus doing when he was a child? Uh, What was Jesus doing when he became a teenager and when he became a young man uh, before he went into his public ministry? What was it that Jesus was doing? One of the things the Word of God says about him is that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was learning during that time. Those 30 years prior uh, to his public ministry, God was in the process of preparing him to preach. Now, we know certainly that God knows everything. God knows all. And there are good reasons why God had Joseph and Mary move from the area of Bethlehem where Jesus was born and to send him into Nazareth to grow up there. Now, we all know that problem as we preached in the first part of Matthew, this problem of Archelaus. He was the ruler at the time that Jesus, right after he was born, Herod, his father, Archelaus' father, had died. But Archelaus was was an indiscriminate killer of Jews. And so in order to protect the infant Jesus... Uh, he moved; his parents moved him to Nazareth, and that's where he grew up. But that was planned by God. I mean, God intended for him to be there. Nazareth was a very despicable place, and God intended for Jesus to grow up there because Jesus would be hated and despised by people. And the only reason that God wanted people to come to him would be by faith. Didn't want people to be drawn for the reason, but perhaps the very most important reason. That Jesus grew up in Nazareth than any other place was because of the preparation for preaching. Now, you see, Nazareth was located in in a crossroads of culture. There were trade routes that passed right through the area of Nazareth. As people were traveling from Asia Minor, and they would go down to Egypt and vice versa, they would pass through this region. And Jesus became acquainted with a great diversity of people. God was preparing him. Now, there was a large mixture of people who lived in that area. Judea, Jerusalem, was east of that, and they didn't have the cosmopolitan nature, the mixture of people, of different kinds of people that you had in a place like Nazareth. And so God placed him there to grow up and to learn where he could meet many different kinds of people. G. Campbell Morgan, who is that great English preacher of the first part of the 20th century, he said, "...the great world powers passed along the road at the foot of the hill." The Hebrew priest, the Roman soldier, the Greek merchant and traveler. Jesus had watched and perceived and measured. And now he came to preach to the Hebrew, to religionists, to Roman, the man of power and government, to Greek, the man of culture and merchandise. And he had one word for each of them, the word repent. Now God put Jesus in a place where he could learn about a diversity of men. And so Jesus was able to approach Many different kinds of people. He knew how to deal with them. And it's interesting here, as G. Campbell Morgan pointed out, that it doesn't make any difference what kind of people they were, where they came from, what their background was. He had one word for them, and that was the word repent. The very same word. So Jesus was prepared for the ministry. Those temptations that we spoke about in the first part of chapter 4, that was God preparing Jesus for ministry Jesus would be tempted in a myriad of ways. He would come across many, many different kinds of people who would tempt him to the max. And so God prepared him to meet those challenges. Jesus was prepared for preaching. Now, let's go on here for just a moment, and let's talk about the place where he preached. This is the difference that we see in in the synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic because they take essentially the same view of things. The Gospel of John is called a non-synoptic Gospel. And what John does, he records many things that are not in the other Gospels, and then he leaves out things that are in the other Gospels. And so what Matthew does and the other gospel writers, they skip over a part of Jesus' ministry. But we can go to the book of John and we find out there that Jesus had about a one-year ministry in Judea before he went into Galilee. During that time, his uh, ministry overlapped that of John the Baptist. And so both Jesus and John the Baptist were preaching at the same time in the area of Judea. In that one year of ministry, we find such things as when Jesus turned water into wine, that great miracle at the Feast of Cana. It's the place where we find Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he told him, you must be born again. And that's where we get these great words. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible, most people can quote it freely, John 3.16. It comes from that one year of Judean ministry. It's also the time that we find in John chapter 4 where Jesus went and he spoke to the woman at the well. And he gave her those wonderful words where he told her that he could give her life, everlasting life, that would spring up in her, a well of water, into everlasting life. All of that happens during the Judean ministry that first year. But Matthew skips over that period, and he gives us the impetus for Jesus leaving the Judean ministry and going into Galilee. In verse number 12, it says here in our text that Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been put into prison. And so some people believe that, well, the opposition became too great for the preaching, and so in order to protect himself, in order that he he might not be put to death in a premature death, that Jesus decided to go into Galilee. Well, it's a nice theory, I just don't think that it's true. I think that this came about because this is exactly the way that God planned it. It's all within the providence of God. Now, Jesus would return to Judea. He would end his ministry there. He would be... Taken and beaten and crucified on the cross. So his ministry would end there. But in the beginning of his ministry, according to prophecy, Jesus was to go into Galilee. The Old Testament had already said that these steps are ordained by the Father. Now Matthew says here in verse number 14 that this is a prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus will return to Galilee. Now at first though, in verse number 13, it tells us that Jesus went to Nazareth. Now, the verses that we read just a moment ago in Luke chapter 4, that was Jesus in Nazareth just before he went into Galilee. And so he went into the synagogue and he began to preach to them. He read the words of Scripture. But Matthew doesn't say why Jesus left Nazareth, why he didn't stay there in the place of his birth and preach there. To understand that, we have to go to the book of Luke. And Luke tells us there that in Nazareth they rejected his preaching. They didn't like what Jesus had to say, and so they got so angry at him that they took him up on a high place, and they were going to cast him off to kill him. I have a picture of this place today. When we were in Israel last year, we visited Nazareth, and this is the place where they say that Jesus would have been thrown off. And this picture is a look down into the valley from that place. And you can get an idea of how far that Jesus would have fallen. So they hated him so much they wanted to kill him. And so what Jesus did, he left Nazareth, and then he went further to the north to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is located on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus headquartered his ministry. And from there, Jesus could speak to a great diversity of people that lived in all of these Galilean cities surrounding there the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's said that the population of that area was as much as 2 million people at the time that Jesus preached there. Now, let's talk a few minutes about that place. First, we're talking about it's a place where darkness abounds. The region of Galilee was inhabited by many Gentiles. There were also many Jews that had intermarried with Gentile people. The reference that we find in verse number 13 to the borders of Zabulim and Nethalim, that's the borders of two tribes of Israel that inhabited or were given that part of Israel to be their inheritance during the time of Joshua. And since the time of Joshua, that northern part of Galilee had been a trouble spot. Uh, these were the first tribes that went into apostasy. When the northern kingdom was separated from the southern kingdom, the Assyrians came in and they conquered this particular area and they intermarried with the people that were there. They mixed it up with the Jews. And that's what prompted much of the rejection of Jesus. No one could believe that a prophet could possibly come out of Galilee. Not from this place where there's such a mixture, where they're not pure Jews. These are people that are far off from the strictness of the Jewish religion practiced in Jerusalem. These are people that are away from temple worship. Surely a prophet cannot arise out of Galilee. But the prophecy from Isaiah says that Jesus would preach there. And this was an area that was darkened by Gentile influence. And this is the place where the light of the gospel of Christ was to shine in during the ministry of Jesus. And so the first ones that we see listening and believe, listening to and believing the preaching of the Messiah is not those holy, pious, righteous Jews that are in Jerusalem, but God decided to bring the gospel on a large scale to the Galileans first. Now, the Jews... Their rejection of Christ started very early. Remember when we were talking about how the wise men, the wise men who were Gentiles, they traveled for hundreds of miles to come and worship Jesus. So they came into Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And those that lived in Jerusalem, they didn't care enough about knowing the Messiah and coming and worshiping him, they wouldn't even travel a mere seven miles to go where Jesus was born. So the Jews started out very early rejecting the ministry of Christ. And so God revealed Jesus in his ministry to the area of Galilee first, to Gentiles and and what they thought were abominable half-breed Jews before he brought the message to the Jews in Judea. Now why did God do that? Well, I think every one of us here today, we need to thank God that he did. Thank him that he did, because this is God telling us it's a sign that salvation has come to the Gentiles. God did not leave us out. And so it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you come from, Jesus came into the world to save you. Jesus died for all kindreds, all tribes, all people and nations, and The gospel is not reserved just for an elite group of people who called themselves the chosen nation of God. But God opened this up so that Gentiles could be saved. And everybody in this room today, we need to thank God that he did that. So salvation came to a place where darkness abounds, to a huge group of people who didn't know and didn't have all of these advantages of being the chosen people of God. But further than that... I want you to know this, that the light has come where darkness abides. Now, let's get a little bit more personal here for just a minute. We can talk about regions of the earth that have never been reached with the gospel of Christ. And we can think of people like animist and, and uh, people who worship idols. We could think about that. <clears throat> but this is actually more personal than that. Because the light has come where darkness abides. And where is it that darkness abides? Well, Every one of us should know where it is. It abides in the human heart. And that means in my heart and in yours. Without Christ and the light of salvation, darkness abides in us. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> when Jesus came to preach and he talked to self-righteous people, he said, i am not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. You see, there were many people who thought that, well, they're already in the light. They didn't need the light. They are already saved. They thought, we don't need this. And so they questioned, Jesus, why would you spend so much time with sinners? Why do you spend time around them? Why do you call them to salvation? You see, they didn't think of themselves as sinners. They thought that they were all right. We don't really need to be saved. You know, someone has wisely said that before you can get a person saved, you have to get them lost. And what that means is that there's nobody who will ever be saved until they realize that they're actually lost. They're without the righteousness of Christ. Now, that's what the Bible says about your heart. Scripture says that the heart is desperately wicked. And it tells us that every person in the world without Christ has a heart that's blackened by sin. And it even goes worse than that. It gets worse because it also says that we're dead in trespasses and sin. So we're spiritually dead, the Bible says, without this light of the gospel in our souls. Well, Jesus is that true light that comes and lights the heart of man. Matthew says in verse 16, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has sprung up. And that is exactly what Jesus is when he's presented in the gospel. By his life By his death, by his resurrection, by faith in what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, dying for sin, by faith believing in the sacrifice that Jesus made, the light shines into darkened hearts. And so if you're without Christ, your heart is darkened. But the Bible teaches if you will trust him, that's when you come into the light of his love. But what is it then that brings us into the light of Christ? Well, there's something that you have to believe. And Matthew tells us what it is that Jesus preached. Now, thirdly, we want to talk about the proclamation that he preached. How do you get into the light of Christ? Well, Matthew makes a statement in verse 17. From that time, <clears throat> Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that sound like Jesus changed the message? You know, we talked about, John the Baptist preaching? Isn't this pure preaching from the pure preacher exactly what we learn from the plain preaching from the plain preacher? They had exactly the same message. And the message is the same for every gospel preacher. John the Baptist's message, Jesus' message, Paul's message, Luther's message, Calvin's message, Gill's message, my message. It's all the same. It doesn't change. A person has to repent other sins. It's exactly the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began to preach repent. That's the start of it. You see, we don't start everything here with Christian living. I don't tell you how you're supposed to live as a Christian. That's not where I start. I don't start with describing to you all the intricate details of the doctrine of the church. I can't start there. I can't start with explaining to you about election and predestination and difficult doctrines of the Word of God. I can't start there. I have to start where the gospel starts, and it starts with the word repent. You must repent of your sins. So we're not preaching here some kind of an ethereal, wispy, touchy-feely kind of, of, of message. That's not what you need to hear. Here is a message that has one concrete demand. You must repent of your sins. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about repentance because Matthew chapter 3, that's, that was John the Baptist's message, and so we spoke about repentance then. So I'm going to be brief as we finish up the sermon today. What does it mean for a person to repent? Well, first of all, it means conviction of sin. That's the realization that you are a sinner. And this is what Jesus does. He confronts our sin head on. You know, today it's, it's popular to preach that God doesn't really care about sin. And actually, you know what they try to do? They try to change sin into mistakes. Your sin is just simply a mistake that you've made in your life. And God's not really interested in sin. What God is interested in is that you will be happy, that you will be respected, no matter what lifestyle that you choose to live. doesn't matter what it is. God wants you to be respected for what you choose. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has a demand in it. It's to repent. And God defines sin in the Bible. Go back and read the Ten Commandments. And and the Bible does say that sin is the transgression of God's law. So go back and read the Ten Commandments. Someone has said that there are 5,000 or more commandments that you can find in the Word of God. Go find them. Go read those commandments, and then you decide, Am I a sinner? I'm going to save you a lot of time. You don't have to go research it all because Paul summarized it for you. He did the research for you, and he said it very simply in one verse of Scripture. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, if you don't believe that verse, what you need to do is pack your suitcase right now and just head on to hell because that's where you're going to end up. That's exactly where you're going if you don't repent of your sins. So can... uh, Repentance begins with conviction of sin. You don't repent of something that you don't think that you're guilty of. So you have to realize this. I have broken God's law. I must, I must start right here. I have to be convicted of my sin. Now, secondly, repentance involves contrition for sin. Now, contrition, contrition is a word that you really don't see very often outside of a biblical context. But the word means to have sorrow for sin. I looked this up in the dictionary, and uh, the dictionary definition was sorrow for sin arising from fear of damnation. Now, did you know that that's really a Roman Catholic definition of this word and not a biblical definition? Fear of punishment alone is never going to lead a person to real evangelical repentance. And so Roman Catholicism mixes this up, and that's where they get this slap-your-hands type of theology. Anybody here ever go to a Catholic school? Okay, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Slap-your-hand theology? And they, they preach that. They're consistent about that because they think fear of punishment is what's going to turn people around. That won't do it. That's not what contrition means. Contrition means that you understand, not just necessarily that you're going to be punished, but you have offended the holiness of God. That what you have done is blight upon God's character. It's not what he intended for men when he created man. And so contrition is when you understand you have, you have been affected and offended the holiness of God. Now, there's a third area of repentance, and that is confession of sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring you to the place that you realize that you're a sinner. So the Holy Spirit convicts you. That's his job. That's what Jesus said. He came to reprove the world of sin. So he convicts. And without the Holy Spirit's power to convict you of your sin, you'll never realize that you're a sinner. I mean, you might understand it, but you don't really uh, understand in one sense. You don't really understand the full consequences of it. You don't accept those consequences. And so what the Holy Spirit does, he comes to you and convicts you and puts into your heart contrition for your sin that you understand the consequences of it. But then comes your action. Then comes your involvement. You have to confess your sins. So who do you confess them to? Oh, some churches will set up a little booth on the side and you go over there and a priest comes in, he sits down there you know, on the other side of a curtain or whatever and you confess your sins to him. You whisper your sins into his ear. I had a great joke about that, but I said I'd cut it out. I'm not going to tell that one today. But you whisper into his ear all of your sins. You don't have to go to a priest to whisper your sins into his ear. You go to God. You confess your sins to God. When David sinned, he said, against thee, thee only, have I sinned. And so repentance contains this necessary element of confessing your sins where you acknowledge your sin is against God. But, you know, you can take all of these steps. You can go through these three steps that I've just given you, and you haven't yet truly repented. You can go even so far as to say, God, I am a sinner, I've sinned against you. I confess that I've sinned against you. And you can start the list all of your sins. You can enumerate every one of them. Go down the list as long as it may be, and you can confess every single one of them, but you have not yet repented until you've taken the last step. Proverbs says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and, and notice this conjunction, and, what does it say? Forsaketh them shall have mercy. So the last step of repentance is this. You must change from sin. You must change your behavior. You have to forsake sin. And you haven't truly repented until there's that demonstrated change. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew doesn't doesn't relate Jesus' full explanation of repentance. He didn't have to. And that's because previously in chapter 3, John the Baptist already spelled it out. There in chapter 3, John said in verse 8, Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. What are fruits of repentance? That's the demonstrated change. Something has taken place in your life. And this is when a person repents and he places his faith in Christ and a change comes to him. Now, I haven't talked too much about faith as it relates to repentance, but when we see in the Scriptures, you'll, you'll see sometimes faith is mentioned but repentance is not mentioned. And sometimes you'll see repentance mentioned and faith is not mentioned. Well, the reason that one or the other might not be is because repentance and faith are what we call inseparable graces. You don't have one without the other. And so you can't repent without having faith, and you can't have faith without repenting. And so no one has true repentance without faith, and no one has true faith without repentance. Now, let me boil that down to you very simply. If you have true faith in Jesus Christ, if your faith is real, it will always be accompanied by a change in your behavior. You can't separate these two. It's impossible. So if you say, well, I'm a believer... I've trusted Jesus Christ. I believe that he saved me from my sins. And yet you can go on day after day in that wicked lifestyle. That you can run around with the same people that you used to be his friends. If you can go to the same old evil haunts that you used to go to, do the same things. If you can talk the same, act the same, look the same. There's no change taking place in you. And that means that you have not truly repented and you haven't truly trusted Christ. Jesus would never accept as faith the kind of faith that does not include a radical change of behavior. And so, in effect, I'm saying there is no true faith without these elements of the inseparable grace of repentance. Conviction of your sin, contrition for sin, confession of sin, and a change of behavior. Now, that's going to bring a question into your mind because some people will say, well, does that mean then that before I can be saved, I must clean up my life? I mean, I've got to be something totally different. I have to change everything. I have to be different before I can be saved. Absolutely not. That can't happen. You can't change your life before you get saved because you're a sinner in need of the grace of God. You're dead in trespasses, and you can't change your life to be saved. But when you are saved, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, when you've truly repented, there will be this demonstrated change. It always happens. And so don't ever claim, I'm truly a Christian If you don't have a demonstrated change in your life, that means your faith isn't real. So look at your life. Examine your life. Do you have saving faith? Well, if so, then it'll be demonstrated by a difference from what you were before. Here's what Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friend, that's the preacher's message. That's what Jesus was called to preach. That was Jesus' message, and it's my message today. And so if you haven't been saved by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Christ, don't leave here today without doing that because the message is still the same in the second part. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. It's at hand. You could die tonight. And if you die without Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. And as some people have said, you will split hell wide open. And you may very well do that if you have not repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you will not see that kingdom unless you heed the message of the pure preacher. He preached a pure message. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that we've been able to share today. We thank you for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People must repent of their sins. They must place their faith in you. That's the only way that any person will ever be saved. Speak to some heart today, Lord, and I just pray that you might save them by your grace. And then I pray, Lord, for someone here today who says, well, I think that I'm a Christian. I claim that I'm saved, but I haven't shown any demonstration of it. I have no fruits in my life. There's nothing that I've done that really demonstrates that I've been saved. Lord, I just pray that you might help them to examine more closely their heart. May your Holy Spirit divide asunder. May, may, it, may it just cut the heart so that it understands, am I truly saved, then there will be a change. And if I'm not, then I need to trust you right now and believe you died to save me from my sins. Speak to some heart today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.